The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Refining Best Practices in Cancer Immunotherapy Biomarker Testing and Pathologic Response Assessment. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash FTC 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hi, welcome everybody to our CME course today. We're going to be talking about refining best practices in cancer immunotherapy, biomarker testing, and pathologic response assessment. My name is Janice Taub. I'm the director of the Division of Dermatopathology at Johns Hopkins Hospital. And my co-presenter today is Dr. Lauren Ritterhouse. She's the associate director of the Center for Integrated Diagnostics at Massachusetts General Hospital and assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. First, some introduction and background to the topic. There are a number of gaps and opportunities for improvement. So immunotherapy testing um, has become standard in many tumor types. There are definitely challenges, especially with PDL1 testing, and there are also a number of questions about uh, MSI status and, and TMB, both of which will be discussed today. So an ISLAG global survey on PDL1 testing for non-small cell lung cancer with more than 300 pathologists um, you know, really focused on the issues with, with PDL1, you know, confusion with antibodies, clones to use, their associated assays, the number of samples, turnaround times, and, and QA metrics were measured. And so its most often used clones are the 22C3 clone used almost 70% of the time, an SP263 clone that's used 50% of the time, and then also reported uses of laboratory-derived tests, and we're going to talk a little bit about those later. If you look at turnaround time, half of pathologists are able to achieve a turnaround time less than two days, but 13% have more than five days. So there's definitely extended need for training, standardization, and better QA measures. If you look at community providers that were surveyed at ASCO on the order of, of 200 people responded, and 40% reported testing less than a quarter of their patients who had advanced cancer for TMB, and around 8% never test. And there were definitely basics that were misunderstood, um, including what the actual testing recommendations were, the, the cut points for interpretation and, and applicability. So again, another gap that could um, be improved by education. And obviously the goal is improved patient outcomes. There's also a new role for pathologists in immunotherapy biomarker testing, and that's in the neoadjuvant setting. And so what pathologists are being asked to do there is to assess the pathologic response to therapy in H&E stained slides. And so in this instance, the patients receive immunotherapy, um, and then the definitive surgical resection is taken out after exposure to immunotherapy, and pathologists then grade the response at that checkpoint. Challenges with this are that the definitions for pathologic response criteria have variation across trials and some tumor types, and there's limited guidance available. And so there are major efforts that are ongoing in refining and standardizing these pathologic response assessments across tumors, and I'm looking forward to sharing that with you today. 
So accordingly, the goals for this educational spe session specifically are to improve understanding of the recommendations and some of the practical considerations for cancer immunotherapy biomarker testing and pathologic response assessment in different tumors and treatment settings, and also to improve your skills in conducting immunotherapy biomarker testing and pathologic response assessment in collaboration with other multidisciplinary colleagues to help guide clinical decisions for patients with cancer. So how do immune checkpoints work? If you think about this constant interplay between the tumor and the immune response, one thing you can do is actually accelerate the immune response against the tumor, so-called turning up the activating. And we do that using agonistic antibodies. The other thing is to release the break that the tumor puts up. And those are the so-called blocking antibodies. Those are blocking the inhibitors. Um, and those are the ones that we're most familiar with, anti-PD-1, anti-PD-L1, anti-CTLA-4, and a newcomer, anti-LAG-3, which has recently um, been improved in combination with anti-PD-1 for patients with melanoma. These inhibitors also work at different stages in priming. So anti-CTLA-4 truly works at the T-cell priming stage and is thought to act primarily in lymphoid tissues. In contrast, anti-PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors work in the tumor microenvironment at the T-cell effector stage. And the implications for us as pathologists is because we have the tumor microenvironment that we're often looking at underneath the microscope, that's where we find those immediate and local biomarkers like PDL1 expression to help us look for these markers to better predict who might respond to therapy. Some of the currently approved monoclonal um, antibodies are shown here, and these are all monotherapies. So anti-PD-1, anti-CTLA-4, anti-PD-L1, as I mentioned, anti-LAG-3, uh, those can be given singularly or in combination. Um, and these monotherapies are approved across many different tumor types, as you can see here, ranging from cervical cancer to Merkel cell carcinoma, primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma, and even biliary tract cancers. We also now have an expansion where we're getting combinatorial approvers. So these are examples where you'll see anti-PD-1 or PD-L1 combined with targeted therapies, combined with chemotherapies, sometimes these um, triplet combinations now. Um, we also, as I mentioned before, have this combination immunotherapy, anti-PD-1 and LAG-3 combined for melanoma and a number of indications with anti-PD-1 combined with anti-CTLA-4. One of the er other areas where we're seeing expansion is that we're transitioning from all of our successes in the advanced disease setting to an earlier stage setting with the idea of curative intent. And so there are a number of adjuvant approvals and specifically we're gonna talk about um, neoadjuvant today when we talk about pathologic response assessment. And so the newest approvals there are a PD-1 inhibitor nivolumab that has been approved in combination with chemotherapy for patients um, 
with non-small cell lung carcinoma in the neoadjuvant setting. And similarly, um, a PD-1 inhibitor, Pembro plus chemotherapy has been approved for patients with triple negative breast cancer in the neoadjuvant setting. We anticipate that the impact of immunotherapy will only continue to grow. So there's more than a thousand active clinical trials um, exploiting um, more than 28 different targets or different mechanisms. And our, our goal here is really to match the best patient to the right therapy. And so the concept is really to use biomarkers to do that, but also to help design rational therapeutic combinations so we aren't just combining everything with everything um, in an empiric fashion. Some of the biomarkers that are being used um, and explored to do that are shown here. There are so-called phenotypic markers where you can actually test on the tumors um, in, the, in the tissue sections, looking at um, gene signatures as well as testing the patient's microbiome. There are also genomic markers such as MSI and TMB, which we'll, we'll touch on today, DNA, FISH, and TCR clonality studies. Three of these, PDL1, IHC, as well as MSI and TMB, are improved as biomarkers by the FDA. And we are um, looking forward to seeing which other biomarkers might be brought forth in the future, or potentially some of these current biomarkers may be combined. Thanks, Dr. Tob, for getting us kicked off with that great introduction. So I'm going to start with um, focusing on those three biomarkers that were just highlighted that are approved by the FDA. So these are biomarkers that we're doing on diagnostic specimens um, in advance of the patient receiving immunotherapy to help guide them to which therapeutics to receive. So let's start off by talking about PDL1, which I think is the biomarker that people are most familiar with in this space. Um, so just going over a few things that are important when we're talking about PDL1 assessment by immunohistochemistry. Of course, it's always important to make sure um, you're evaluating and reviewing a validated IHC assay and all the proper controls are functioning as one would expect. Um, and the specimen should always meet the pre-analytical requirements, whether it be fixation type, the section, um, the storage of the tissue section. And then it's important to consider tumor and assay specific differences, um, different patterns or scoring systems or cut points this is particularly important if, if you're looking at an assay or a particular tumor type in which um, you're not reviewing this particular PDL1 assay on a regular basis to make sure you're familiar with the differences in the different assays and scoring systems. And as we'll have a few example slides um, shown subsequently, PDL1 can be expressed in a variety of cell types. So it can be expressed in tumor cells and stromal cells and immune cells. And in the tumor cells, we're looking um, for membranous staining uh, of any intensity, and it doesn't have to be complete membranous staining. Um, and immune cell staining can be cytoplasmic in contrast. <clears throat> and I'll have a few examples of things to exclude when one is evaluating PDL1. So excluding areas of in situ disease or dysplasia, any areas of the tumor that are non-invasive. Um, you know, on, if on the section that PDL1 is being evaluated, if there's an area of the slide that has non-tumor tissue, it's important to not look at the immune cells away from the tumor, and then to avoid areas of necrosis. 
And finally, PD-L1 staining can be heterogeneous, even within the same tissue section. So it's important to integrate scores um, across the tumor that's being evaluated. So I've alluded to several different PDL1 scoring systems, um, and I'm not going to go into too much in-depth detail of, of the scoring systems here, but just to highlight a few. Um, so the TPS and the TC score are very similar. So this is where we're looking at the number of PDL1 stained tumor cells divided by the total number of viable tumor cells in the section that's being evaluated. Um, this is in contrast to the CPS score, which is looking at not only the number of tumor cells that are stained with PDL1, um, but also adding that to the number of lymphocytes and macrophages. And so that's all part of the numerator here, this equation. And then that number is divided by the total number of viable tumor cells present. So that's the CPS score. And then finally on the bottom is the IC score, which is looking at actually, instead of just absolute numbers, looking at the area, area on the slide. So the area of the tumor infiltrated by pd one stained immune cells divided by the total area that the tumor is present on the section. So a few of the cases that I wanted to show here to highlight some of the topics that, that I've already mentioned. Um, and this is a nice example just to remind everyone that a variety of cell types can express PDL1, and it's very important to know what cell type you're looking at when you're doing these scores. Um, and sometimes that's easier, easier said than done. So tumor and immune cells and stromal cells can express PDL1, um, like you can see an example of, of that in this particular image. Another thing that can be tricky depending on, on the section that you're looking at is to remember that macrophages um, can express pd one in a membranous pattern very similar to tumor cells and that we wanna make sure that we're kept looking at tumor cells um, and not being fooled by macrophages. This is a really nice example of why we want to avoid areas of the tumor where there's large areas of necrosis. Um, as you can see here on the left and low power on the right and a little bit higher power areas and necrosis in this lung cancer specimen. Um, and it can display chromogenic signal. So we want to stay away from this and make sure we're not scoring either tumor or immune cells in this region um, because it can be an artifact of, of, the, necro of the necrosis. <clears throat> and another reminder to only evaluate the invasive component of the tumor so things like breast carcinoma, where we're seeing um, DCIS or carcinoma in situ, um, we want to make sure we're not evaluating the DCIS, nor the immune cell component around the DCIS, only an invasive component of the tumor. And finally, the last topic example here is that pd one staining can be heterogeneous, um, even within the same tissue section. So you might have one area of the tumor where you see PDL1 staining that might be more prevalent in other areas of the tumor where it's less. And so looking at the entire section that's being evaluated and coming up with a composite score that represents the entirety of the tumor is important to keep in mind. What role do you think LDTs have in testing for PDL1? That's that's a really great question and, and something that I think a lot of um, people have uh, struggled with and how to implement so many different PDL1 assays in our laboratories. Um, I think there's a few different approaches and strategies. Um, some, for example, large commercial reference laboratories might be able to offer all the different companion diagnostic clones and assays. And of course, those it's not just the clone, they're associated with an entire staining system, for example. Um, 
Whereas, you know, smaller institutions or academic hospitals might not be able to offer all of the different assays and have all the different platforms available. And so some people have taken the approach of using a lab developed test, um, similar to the one that was shown um, in that comparator study on a few slides ago. Um, and after doing really rigorous assessments to show that this particular assay and platform um, performs um, in a comparable way to the companion diagnostic or other assays. Um, and then that is the assay that you're able to offer at your institution. So I, I do think it plays a significant role in access to pdl one testing um, because it would be very difficult if all the PDL1 tests, you know, in, in, in the entire country were have to be sent to just a handful of, of commercial reference send out labs that have the ability to have all these tests. So I do think it has a role, but I think it really has to be the LDT and the platform on which it's used. You know, you can also think about where one of the clones um, that are part of these companion diagnostic or complementary assays might be used on a different platform. So then it's a, you know, an IVD used as an LDT situation, um, you know, that's also an option. If they're rigorously tested and there's a nice comparison showing that they perform well, I, I think that's an important role in, um, you know, increasing access to biomarker testing for all of our patients that the largest number of, of pathology practices can, can implement it. All right, so let's move to the second biomarker in this section, which is microsatellite instability and mismatch repair deficiency. And this is a really nice figure showing um, the frequency with which you can find MSI high cancers across a variety of tumor types. And so the ones on the left, which have a very high percent of cases being MSI high are of course, endometrial cancer, colon cancer, and gastric cancer. And in thinking about looking at this as a pan-tumor biomarker, um, you know, it's really easy to pick up MSI high in these tumor types because a lot of practices and institutions have been already doing reflex testing um, via immunohistochemistry, at least for colon cancer, and then maybe a little bit later in endometrial cancer for many years, looking for Lynch syndrome screening. Um, so the incidence of MSI high is quite high in these tumor types, um, and many places were already detecting them by routine IHC testing. But if you look after these tumor types in which it's really common, you can see there's a long tail um, of a large number of tumor types. And, and this particular isn't all-inclusive. There are many tumor types in which you can find MSI high that aren't depicted here, um, in which you can find tumors that are MSI high, um, albeit very rarely. And so, you know, this leads to a discussion of how are we going to identify all these patients? Um, what are the testing strategies to look for MSI high in these variety of tumors? Um, and then also what is, what is kind of the threshold for determining MSI high, um, which is a similar conversation that we'll have when we look at TMB as a biomarker next. Um, now that we're thinking about looking at MSI high in a variety of tumors other than colon cancer and by a variety of different testing modalities. So let's talk a little bit about how to test for MSI high or mismatch repair deficiency. Um, immunohistochemistry, everyone I think is pretty familiar with it. Um, it's, it's a very great test to look for um, this particular biomarker for a variety of reasons. It's widely available. Many um, immunohistochemistry and pathology laboratories already have it in-house and available. It doesn't require any matched normal, so you don't have to have normal blood or normal tissue to evaluate it. 
and you don't need a ton of tumor and you don't need a really high tumor purity specimen to work. You can just have a few foci of convincing invasive um, cancer and that is enough to interpret an IHC assay. So it's, it's a really good option. Um, another method, so that's for looking at, you're looking at the actual protein here, right? You're looking at loss of expression. Other methods are actually looking at the genomic features of microsatellite instability high, just kind of the downstream effect of not having proper mismatch repair protein functioning. And the gold standard of this is a PCR-based test. So it's amplifying different of these microsatellites or homopolymers or um, other repetitive sections of DNA, amplifying them by PCR. So this is looking just at a handful of loci. So five, to, most laboratories do five. Some people do up to 10 loci and then doing a sizing assay with capillary electrophoresis. And so while this is considered the gold standard for MSI detection, um, it does have some limitations. Um, so it requires a tumor section and a non-tumor uh, sample. So that's blood or some other tissue section that you have that doesn't have any tumor involved in it. And the tumor section actually has to have a reasonable amount of tumor purity. You need 25 to 30% tumor cells. Um, so depending on the tissue that, that you have available, sometimes that's not um, possible. Um, the other thing, this requires a high complexity molecular diagnostic laboratory. Um, this isn't as widely available as IHC, for example. <laughs> now comparing the sensitivity um, between these two tests, um, depending on the study that you look at and the tumor types that you're looking at, um, IHC has a reasonable sensitivity. Some studies have shown that it's around 85%. Um, some newer ones have shown that it's actually above 90%. So it has a reasonable performance when comparing it um, to PCR, the gold standard. And so, of course, PCR it has a very high sensitivity, um, particularly for things like colorectal cancer. So this PCR, the loci that were chosen for the PCR-based test were chosen um, because the goal was identifying MSI high in colon cancer, trying to screen for patients with Lynch syndrome. So I think that's important to keep in mind when we think about now, this is a pan-tumor biomarker, and we're wanting to look at this to identify patients that might be eligible for immunotherapy, um, not looking just at colon cancers and risk for Lynch syndrome screening. And, and I'll talk on a subsequent slide why, why this might matter. So another method for looking at MSI high is using next generation sequencing. So those same microsatellites and homopolymer regions that I mentioned on the previous slide that we're looking at by PCR, um, you can look at by next generation sequencing. And the great thing about this is that many of the existing um, NGS panels and assays that are available um, at a variety of institutions, both in-house and commercial laboratories, as part of their existing comprehensive genomic profiling panel already cover these homopolymers and they're already sequencing the microsatellites. Um, it's not a separate test that you have to order. It's not an MSI NGS test that one orders. It's, usually, it's often available as part of a comprehensive genomic profiling report. So it's very convenient if the patient was already getting an NGS panel to help guide therapy, to look for targeted um, genomic drivers, um, et cetera. This is kind of an additional piece of data that you can already get. Um, some of the benefits of looking for MSI high by NGS is that unlike PCR, you don't need to match normal, um, depending on the particular NGS assay. A few of them um, do tumor and match normal, but many of them don't require match normal. 
And, um, you know, this may have some improved performance for NGS detections for certain tumor types, for example, for tumor types other than colon cancer. Um, this figure here on the right um, is from a study that actually demonstrated if you look at all the microsatellite regions across the entire genome, um, some of them um, are actually altered in MS high, high colon cancer and not in other tumor types. So you can see the columns there on the left. I have that um, black rectangle highlighting each row is a different um, homopolymer region throughout the genome, and each column is a different tumor type. And you can see the column all the way on the left is quite dark blue. So those are loci that are altered in MSI high colon cancers. And you can see on the right, all these other tumor types, it's actually white to light blue. Um, those loci aren't even impacted in MSI high tumors and other tumor types. So an NGS panel will give you the ability to look at microsatellite instability across the entire genome, not just limit it to five or 10 loci, which I think can improve its performance in detecting MSI high in tumors other than colon cancer. All right, so this is the four IHC proteins that many people are very familiar with um, in, in looking at and evaluating. And this is the most classic example that we see where we see a loss of staining of MLH1 and PMS2 in the tumor cells. And this is a nice example because we see the internal control with positive staining of the stromal cells in between the tumor cells that have lost. And um, a large percent of the time, this is due to MLH1 promoter hypermethylation, which is um, uh, you know, a non-germline event, um, but not always. So this is, this is always um, reflexed and followed up with additional testing. I had a couple of questions. Um... For those tumor types that have a lower proportion that are MSI high, the ones beyond, you know, colon, endometrial, gastric, you alluded to testing strategies for identifying those. What strategies do you use? Yeah, I think, I think that's a great question. I think there's um, a few different strategies. Um, one of which, which um, if you couldn't tell, I was advocating for well, the utility of comprehensive genomic profiling, which is already kind of advocated um, in a few tumor types um, as being the, you know, a recommended way for biomarker testing, such as a non-small cell lung cancer. Um, and that's a great, that's a great use case. And something like non-small cell lung cancer, um, where MSI high isn't common, but it does occur. And you already need genomic profiling to look for your other driver alterations, and it has an improved performance. So I think, you know, as comprehensive genomic profiling becomes more standard um, across a variety of tumor types, I, I think that is an ideal way to look for MSI high and some of these tumor types in which it's, it's not common um, because it's kind of as a bonus piece of data that you get as, as far as your biomarker testing strategy goes. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, at your institution, do you all have um, a, a routine way to look for MSI high and some of these other tumor types in which it's not common, or is it kind of done on an ad hoc basis? Yeah, it feels very um, provider dependent. Um, so uh, for patients who haven't had the comprehensive genomic profiling performed, if they are failing other therapies or don't have an evident therapy, the, the provider will ask us to provide uh, to perform these studies to see if they might be a good candidate for immunotherapy. But um, I don't feel like we have a, a structured way that we are proceeding as pathologists, independent of that oncologist input. Yeah. And I would have to agree. I think that's 
that's kind of the practice that's done at my institution as well. If, if they haven't already gotten it as kind of, like you said, as a bonus, as part of an NGS panel, then um, kind of when they are thinking about potential therapeutic options that will get ordered kind of on an ad hoc basis by the oncologist. But we as pathology also don't have kind of a more standardized approach to looking for that biomarker. All right. So now we're going to switch gears to a somewhat related and somewhat overlapping but distinct biomarker, which is tumor mutational burden. So just to take a brief step back um, and have everyone re-familiarize ourselves with DNA mutations. So it's really, when we're talking about the tumor mutational burden, um, I like to say it's like got the, the simplest definition possible. And yet I could spend like six hours talking about the complexities of it. Um, so what is a DNA mutation? It's, it's just the alteration in the original DNA sequence. And there's a variety of different DNA mutations that we can have um, that cause a variety of changes downstream as far as impacting the protein and the amino acid structure. So you can have a change in the DNA um, that doesn't result in any changes to the amino acid sequence. You can have a change in the DNA that results in a single amino acid substitution in the protein. Um, or you can have a DNA mutation that actually results in a complete truncation of the protein um, that causes a vastly altered protein structure. And so when we're talking about microsatellite instability high, those alterations tend to be frame shift alterations. And what a frame shift means is um, that you alter the coding sequence of the DNA and then you get an early stop codon. So you totally are truncating your proteins. Um, and so that's one type of alteration. So I think um, what Dr. Taub alluded to on one of the early introduction slides is I think there's an idea and I'll be, I was one of the people when TMB first came out as a biomarker saying, this is silly. That's just MSI high cases, but, the, but there really is, um, it is kind of a unique biomarker that can detect a variety of different DNA mutational spectrum and etiologic processes other than MSI high. And I hope to show you a little bit of that. So why is TMB high a useful biomarker for, for immune checkpoint inhibition? Um, the, the reasoning is very similar to why MSI high is thought to be a good biomarker. So the larger number of mutations that you have in a tumor, the more of these amino acids and protein structures are going to be altered. And then a subset of those will end up being presented um, and recognized as a neoantigen by the immune system. So if you have a lot of neoantigens, the more mutations, the more neoantigens. You can imagine this is going to lead to increased immune system recognition of the tumor. So really revving up the immune system in response to the tumor. And I always like showing this figure or a version of this figure when I'm talking about TMB because I want to point out um, several important concepts um, because tumor mutational burden is a pan-tumor biomarker and we think about it um, across tumor types, but I still think it's important to keep in mind um, its role in individual tumor types as well. So this figure has tumor types sorted from left to right, from the ones on the left having the lowest median TMB for that tumor type to the tumor types all the way on the right, tumor types that have the highest median TMB. And the y-axis here is the tumor mutational burden rate, and it's on a log scale. So I think that's important to also keep in mind when looking at this figure. So a few general trends can be noted. Um, tumors that have the highest median TMB are tumor types that are seen in adults and they're solid tumors. 
tumor types that tend to have a lower TMB are tumors that are seen um, in pediatric populations and hematopoietic neoplasms. So those are two general trends. There's always, um, there's always exceptions, of course. The other thing that I want to point out is you see the tumors I have highlighted in red here on the right that have the highest TMB. So these are tumors that are associated with some sort of environmental exposure. So smoking and lung cancer, smoking and bladder cancer, UV exposure and melanoma. Um, these tumors tend to have the highest mutational rates. And the other thing that I think is important to think out that even though all these different tumor types have, you know, a, a different trend of being higher or lower TMB, if you look within each tumor type itself, there's actually a pretty wide range of TMBs that can be seen within a single tumor type. So I think that's why TMB is useful um, as a pan-tumor biomarker, because even within one tumor type, there's a very wide range of mutational burdens that you can see, despite these overarching trends. So this is, again, just a flavor to show you that there's a variety of different ways to calculate tumor mutational burden. It's usually a metric that's given um, as part of a comprehensive genomic profiling assay. It's usually not a standalone test. Um, and there's a variety of different ways of calculating it, reporting it, and interpreting it. And um, there are standardization efforts ongoing. Um, but right now, as you can see here, this, it's not currently standardized. And so like MSI High that has a pan-tumor FDA approval, um, in June of 2022, the FDA approved pembrolizumab for unresectable tumors with high TMB. Um, and this was based on, you know, over a thousand tumors with advanced solid tumors that were treated with anti-PD-1. Um, but the patients that actually had high tissue TMB were, were really from kind of a small number um, of tumor types that you can see depicted here. But the patients in blue that had the high um, tissue TMB values um, had a greater response rate than those that had non-tissue TMB high. And I just want to mention um, there are standardization efforts ongoing, um, one of which is the Friends of Cancer Research that has published um, re and really extensively on this topic, um, trying to guide trying to guide laboratories that are trying to validate this and add it to their existing NGS panels and kind of give more guidance of how to interpret these values from different laboratories in context with one another. But there's still a lot of, I think, work that, ne that needs to be done in this space. And finally, um, this is a nice figure looking at all three of the biomarkers that I've discussed already. And so in contrast to what I initially thought of when I heard TMB as a biomarker however many years ago, Thinking, well, this is just MSI high cases, you can actually see that there is a significant overlap. Um, so many MSI high tumors are TMB high, but there's actually a significantly larger number of patients that are TMB high that are not MSI high. Um, and so, you know, you would think about things like melanoma that have UV signatures and have very high mutation rates, but aren't MSI high. And there's many examples of that. Um, so it is not, it is a somewhat overlapping population, but not completely overlapping. And then putting those on top of PDL1, which is the big green circle here, which captures the largest number of patients. Um, you know, I think this is a nice figure to show that these don't, these can be very complementary biomarkers. Um, it's not something that is done in any composite way at this time. Um, we don't think about 
um, all three of these biomarkers as a composite score. They're viewed independently, but I think you can see here how they could serve as complementary biomarkers and really catch a wider net of patients um, than if you're just looking at one of these biomarkers by itself. And to just illustrate um, how these biomarkers can be complementary, um, I have a few cases to show here, um, both of which are non-small cell lung cancers. So this is a patient who received comprehensive genomic profiling, looking for driver alterations, um, and there was no driver alteration found in you know, EGFR, ALK, RETROS, BRAF, or KRAS, um, and it had a pretty low tumor mutational burden, so five mutations per megabase, and it was microsatellite stable. However, 75% of the tumor cells express PDL1. So this patient, um, based on all these findings, um, you know, would be considered a good candidate for IO. Now, the flip of this is another patient with non-small cell lung cancer who also had comprehensive genomic profiling and no driver alterations were identified again. Um, microsatellite stable. Um, however, this time the tumor mutational burden was considered high, so 20 mutations per megabase. Um, but if we just looked at the PDL1, um, less than 1% of the tumor cells express PDL1. So adding on this tumor mutational burden, um, you know, his ability to capture this patient that would have been lost if you were just looking at the other two biomarkers. Thanks for that. I had a question. I mean, yeah. we, I was struck by the fact that when we were talking about PDL1 assays, the focus was on comparison of performance. And while you did a, a nice and thorough comparison, um, you moved to the concept of harmonization. Can you tell me a little more about that? Yeah, there's been, um, I think tumor, is, how these biomarkers have evolved into clinical practice has, has been a little different. Um, so tumor mutational burden became um, a biomarker that was discussed and implemented um, at least in a small fraction of institutions and hospitals throughout the country before there was a companion diagnostic TMB assay, for example. Um, and so many laboratories sought to bring on this biomarker and either validate it as part of their existing comprehensive genomic profile, um, but there was no companion diagnostic assay available. And so I think kind of initially, a lot of people started doing it and they were attempting to validate it based on tumor normal whole exome sequencing, um, there weren't any guidelines, there wasn't any, any standardization, and, and many people were kind of left to figure out how to do it. So I think that led to a lot of these electrical grassroot type efforts for harmonization. Uh, forensic cancer research is a great one, which many institutions participate in, and really they're like, look, you know, this is an important biomarker, we want to be able to offer this to our oncology colleagues and to our patients. Um, but we need some better guidelines, we need standardization, we need to know how our TMB value correlates to another laboratory's TMB value. And so it kind of has evolved organically like this, probably not as fast as everyone would like. I think everyone would like it to have very kind of straight guidelines. But now, um, you know, the, this group has published recommendations of, you know, this is how you should, these are the considerations of how to develop it, how to validate it. And then once you get a value, you know, what is the comparison across assays? And so, um, I think it's kind of evolved really differently based on how it was initially rolled out into clinical practice. Um, and, it, you know, it's been an important effort from the molecular diagnostic pathology community. That's a great question. I'm now going to talk about pathologic response assessment after neoadjuvant immunotherapy. 
I'm going to start by framing really the clinical case and what I think is going to be the anticipated future demand for us as pathologists to perform this pathologic response assessment after patients have received neoadjuvant immunotherapy. And then I'm going to talk about some of the scoring systems that are out there, but I'm specifically going to focus on a standardized pan-tumor approach. And then in a practical sense, we're going to talk about identifying features of tumor regression and how one goes about calculating percent residual viable tumor. So some background, as I mentioned in the introduction, um, you know, immune checkpoint blockade is really a common denominator treatment um, in patients with multiple advanced tumor types. And so um, not only are we seeing it go across different tumor types, but as we mentioned, it's transitioning from the advanced disease setting into the neoadjuvant and the adjuvant treatment settings. And in those settings, you're really aiming to um, cure through preventing or delaying recurrence, um, as well as treating perhaps some micrometastatic disease that wasn't cleared at the time of surgery. So to define these processes to you and think about what we're seeing as pathologists, right? In adjuvant neotherapy, patient has a tumor, it gets removed at surgery, and then the patient receives immunotherapy. And the last schematic is showing the immune system uh, potentially interacting with any tumor cells that are left behind. Neoadjuvant is different in that the patients receive the immunotherapy while the bulk of the tumor is still in place. So T-cell activation and liaising and uh, priming of the response happens even before the specimen is received. So we actually have an opportunity as pathologists to look at that interplay between the immune system and the tumor and perhaps gauge some initial efficacy. So there is this increase in neoadjuvant anti-PD-1 and PD-L1 based therapy trials uh, worldwide. And so what you're seeing here on, on the left are the phases of the study. So phase one is shown in blue, phase two is shown in orange, but we are seeing phase three studies in gray. And those are obviously um, the most proximate prerequisite to clinical implementation on, on our part. And then if you split those between neoadjuvant and adjuvant, neoadjuvant is shown in the plot on the right with adjuvant being shown um, in orange. So sorry, neoadjuvant is blue and adjuvant is shown in orange. And so the greatest proportion of these that are moving forward are neoadjuvant regimens. And so, in fact, um, in 2021, the FDA approved neoadjuvant um, PEMBRO combination for a triple negative breast cancer indication. And just last year, they approved neoadjuvant NEVO plus chemotherapy for patients with early stage non-small cell lung carcinoma. So because of this, we are seeing these specimens already in our pathology labs as part of routine care. 
And so when we receive these specimens, the expectation is that the pathologist is going to assess for percent residual viable tumor. And the reason we do that is that there's evidence that's accumulating, not just in the two tumor types that I mentioned, but across multiple tumor types, that the amount of tumor that's left behind in that specimen can actually be used as a surrogate marker for long-term survival. And so because of that, you can actually predict how a patient may do in weeks or months when we get that specimen in surgical pathology, rather than obviously waiting many years to determine outcomes. And so because of that, you can um, help then direct adjuvant therapy decisions. For example, if the tumor is completely cleared, uh, perhaps one considers that therapy sufficient and then uh, no additional therapy is warranted. Whereas if there has been no response to therapy whatsoever, um, rather than just continuing to give that same therapy in the adjuvant setting, it is possible then to reconsider maybe changing to a different therapy that that tumor type or that specific tumor might be more susceptible to. So how do we calculate percent residual viable tumor? Well, you take the surface area of the viable tumor as seen on a slide divided by the complete surface area of the tumor bed. And so um, the tumor bed is really considered to be the surface area of the tumor before the patient receives that neoadjuvant immunotherapy. And I'm gonna talk about how that is determined. There are some important thresholds and some abbreviations that I'll be using. So PCR is a pathologic complete response, and that's when you have no residual viable tumor that's left behind. MPR, major pathologic response, is less than or equal to 10% residual viable tumor. And there's some terminology that we use in, in melanoma, but not, not necessarily for all tumor types, a so-called partial pathologic response, which is when you have between 10 and 50% residual viable tumor. So I wanna show you some of the data that's accumulating about the percent residual viable tumor and the correlation with survival. And this is from patients with melanoma. So in patients who had zero or less than 10% residual viable tumor, you can see those patients did the best at around 30 months of, of follow-up with regard to recurrence-free survival. Those with the so-called partial pathologic response, less than 50%, that's shown in green, those patients did next best. And then not surprisingly, those patients with more than 50% residual viable tumor did the worst in terms of outcomes. This is an example of patients with Merkel cell carcinoma. The cohort wasn't as large, so we couldn't stratify by different cut points. We were able just to look at those that had a pathologic complete response versus those that had residual tumor left behind. And you can see there's a clear distinction between these two populations um, when looked at three-year follow-up. This is in a larger cohort of patients with lung cancer that were treated with neoadjuvant NEVO plus chemotherapy. And you can see this nice stratification here of long-term patient outcomes, uh, at least related to event-free survival by percent residual viable tumor. So cut points examined here were zero to 5%. Those patients did the best. 
Those with um, anywhere between 5 and 80% residual viable tumors showed very similar outcomes. Those that had absolutely, you know, no detectable response to very minor response, so more than 80% residual viable tumor did the worst. So that same cohort actually uh, looked at uh, percent RVT and two-year event free survival and non-small cell lung carcinoma. And you can see here that you can actually develop a receiver operating characteristic curve with an AUC of 0.74, which is on par, if not above, some reports of PDL1 IHC or tumor mutational burden. And, and here what we're looking for is not response to therapy in the pretreatment setting, but again, we're looking at the relationship between how much tumor is left behind once the patient has been on treatment and what their event-free survival is. So um, this is important because you know pathologic complete response has really been uh, a historical focus. If you look back at the breast cancer literature and the chemotherapy experience, but pathologic complete response really only serves a small proportion of our patients. And this plot and other ones like it show that we can prognosticate and make treatment decisions based at other cut points of residual viable tumor. There's a lot more information that's there simply beyond is there tumor left or not tumor left. And right now the recommendation is to collect at 10% intervals of residual viable tumor. Um, at some point, when enough, once enough data is amassed, we very well may be able to collapse those cut points into bins um, that we know are clin clinically meaningful for particular disease types or a particular therapy. But until that point, again, it looks like collecting this um, in a discrete but also um, more continuous fashion, meaning 10% intervals all the way up to 100% residual does have added value. So what are the pathologic response uh, scoring systems that currently exist? Well, there was a proliferation of them as these trials have, have come through. So uh, ones for melanoma, bladder, head and neck, I'm showing here three different discussions of, of scoring systems for lung. Um, and a lot of them really um, can differ in this question of where the tumor used to be. And so there has been a proposal for immune-related pathologic response criteria, similar to the fact that um, these tumor types are, or these therapies, um, are a common denominator um, used colloquially across different tumor types. We can literally calculate um, in a similar way the denominator to this equation, knowing that immunotherapy shows similar um, mechanisms across these different tumors of efficacy, and we can detect that histologically. So to that end, I, rather than going through a bunch of the, the different scoring systems, I'm really going to focus on a, a pan-tumor scoring system. I will come back at the end uh, to talk about ISLAC lung criteria as compared to this 
because we are anticipating FDA approvals using that criteria as well. Um, relating to breast, um, there has not been a specific scoring system beyond the residual cancer burden system that has been previously used for chemotherapy that has been brought forward. Um, the breast FDA approval used pathologic downstaging with AJCC. So in contrast to that, the FDA approval for Nevo plus chemo in patients with resectable non-small cell lung cancer did use the immune-related pathologic response criteria system that I'm going to describe to you today. Again, as I mentioned, there's the advantage that is a pan-tumor approach. Um, even though it was initially developed in the context of patients receiving pure immunotherapeutic regimens, it's also now been shown to be applicable to patients receiving chemotherapy alone, immunotherapy plus chemotherapy, and extended combinatorial treatment regimens. Why would we want a pan-tumor system? Um, you know, it allows for direct comparisons of relative therapeutic efficacy across different tumor types. So that's really advantageous as um, these regimens are being uh, given to different patients. Um, maybe one, it's easy to see that patients with melanoma then respond uh, more quickly or perhaps more thoroughly than patients with a different tumor type, for example. It provides a scoring system for tumor types that weren't previously treated in the neoadjuvant setting. For example, um, you know, these immunotherapeutic regimens are so efficacious, they are now being used in tumor types beyond, you can think about breast and lung that typically were treated in the neoadjuvant setting and already had a scoring system in place. We can think about basal cell carcinoma, for example, or Merkel, they're the ones that I come across, of course, as a dermatopathologist. We did not typically treat those before in the neoadjuvant setting. And if you have a pan-tumor scoring system, we can take that off the shelf rather than um, having to derive a new system for each of these tumor types being treated. Um, and perhaps importantly, um, it avoids the different scoring systems that get developed within the context of a clinical trial and once that happens and there are attendant approvals, um, it is anticipated that pathologists will implement these scoring systems clinically um, the same way that they were done in the trial, similar to what we've seen with, with PDL1 IHC, right? So here is the current PDL1 testing landscape. And this was touched on uh, before by Dr. Ritterhouse, but it is exceedingly complex to have to think as a pathologist, well, you know, which drug is this patient receiving? What tumor type do they have? What clone do I need to order? You know, what, what line of setting? And therefore, that dictates the um, scoring system and cutoff used for each of these. And the hope is that we can actually get aligned ahead of time. So in 2019, a, a proposal um, was generated for a pan-tumor scoring system of pathologic response. And so this was initially based on review of over 500 treatments um, on treatment specimens from more than 10 different tumor types. And these were specifically from regimens that contained either anti-PD-1 or anti-PDL-1. 
And as I alluded to previously, there were consistent histologic features of immune-mediated pathologic response, irrespective of the original tumor type. Interestingly, um, it, it also didn't matter on location, um, nor did it matter whether it was a primary tumor or, in some case, a metastasis that was studied. So immune-mediated regression looks like immune-mediated regression wherever you are in the body. Um, at the same time, this pan-tumor scoring system was proposed, uh, an interreader agreement test was done showing excellent concordance across five pathologists at those 10% residual viable tumor thresholds that I mentioned previously. So implementation now that this has been FDA um, approved, um, we are seeing implementation across numerous types, not just that study of lung cancer and what I'm showing here in the pink boxes, are the different tumor types that have used this IRPRC system and reported on it. So you can see colon, esophageal, Merkel, head, neck, cutaneous squame, gastric, amongst others here. And again, um, we're seeing it across different treatment regimens, so not just classic pure monotherapy, immunotherapy. But you can see um, we have combination targeted therapy and chemotherapy and immunotherapy. Also, combinatorial immunotherapeutic regimens have used this scoring system. So how do we score? Again, percent residual viable tumor is the area where you have viable tumor on the slide divided by where that tumor used to be. So. This is a, a big squamous tumor. Um, you can see the big pink polygonal squames even at this low power within the, the blue line. I would say that's approximately 80% surface area covered by, by tumor cells. And then you're dividing by where the tumor used to be. And that extends all the way out to the green line. So how do we know actually where the tumor used to be? So some of these initial studies used to establish this scoring system did extensive measurements looking at the radiology, looking at the gross report, and then comparing back to the, the histology and showed um, good correlations between these parameters, helping to establish the original extent of the tumor. There's also pathologic signs that the tumor used to extend out to the orange boundary, or excuse me, the um, green boundary. In this specific example, because this is a keratinizing tumor, you can actually see residual keratin pearls out in that area of regression. So the immune response has cleared all the tumor cells, but they haven't been able to clear the keratin, just formed a giant cell wall around it. And so, again, it's important to recognize this total tumor bed area because it really influences your score. So if you only score based on the area in the blue line, you would mistakenly say that there's 80% residual viable tumor. But if you accurately recognize the full extent of where the tumor used to be, it's actually 40% residual viable tumor. 
So what is in that tumor bed and what are some of those other non-neoplastic features that can help you recognize it? So not surprisingly, there's um, stigmata of immune activation. So tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, lots of plasma cells. You can sometimes see granulomas. Tertiary lymphoid structures often are present at the periphery of that regression bed. In areas of tumor cell death where you've had a lot of lysis, you see foamy macrophages that are taking up that extra cholesterol from cell membranes. Sometimes you can see these extracellular cholesterol clefts, um, often surrounded by, by giant cells. But one of the features I find most helpful are features of wound healing or of tissue repair. So you've got a, a background of, of proliferative fibrosis often um, and lots of new vessels. So it's the body trying to heal itself, a wound that's healing after that tumor has been cleared. Shown again, I'm just going to keep mentioning these features again, cholesterol clefts, uh, fibrosis, lymphoid aggregates and tertiary lymphoid structures, a lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate. You can see foamy macrophages here. Importantly, these are in the interstitium in the lung, not alveolar macrophages. And the inset shows the uh, example of neovascularization. Again, a very helpful feature, I think, specifically. Now you can see these features in a lymph node, not just at the primary tumor, and we see this specifically in the areas of um, you know, melanoma and Merkel cell where the primary is surgically resected, but the neoadjuvant treatment is given when a patient has lymph nodal disease. You do also see this in, in the lung cancer resections too. And so these are uh, features are the same in the lymph node, neovascularization, plasma cells, proliferative fibrosis, sometimes a hyalinized fibrosis, cholesterol clefts. You know, with melanoma, you often see melanophages rather than foamy macrophages. But again, the same constellation of features are consistent. Going across different tumor types here, just so your eyes can start to get attuned to the pattern. A head and neck squamous cell carcinoma, Merkel vulvar carcinoma, cervical carcinoma, and renal cell. Showing again, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, tertiary lymphoid structures and lymphoid aggregates, prominent plasma cells, cholesterol clefts with foamy macrophages, and the constellation of all of those together is, is what we commonly see. Now these are, again, the, the different um, tumor types receiving extended treatments combined with anti-PDL1. So again, not just monotherapy here, but looking at immunotherapy plus chemotherapy, combined immunotherapy. We're again seeing these same features um, across the spectrum of tumor types. Here's another example of, of being able to actually score features in a lymph node. You can see that the zone of regression, the normal lymph node rind is shown off to the left where the residual tumor is shown off to the right. If you do a surface area calculation just on what we're seeing here, this would be a so-called major pathologic response in the lymph node, less than or equal to 10% residual viable tumor out of that original tumor bed that had been occupied in the lymph node. So I mentioned that I would also talk about the ISLAC criteria as approvals using this criteria are anticipated and, and how that relates to pan tumor scoring uh, that I've shown here. 
There's lots of similarities in terms of grossing. The, the recommendation to submit a complete cross-section of the entire tumor uh, to potentially take photographs with, with block mapping can definitely be helpful. Um, a recommendation that if the residual viable tumor, you know, is, is greater than 10% to report an increasing 10% increments. And that the definition of the total area of the tumor bed is, is the area that's originally um, involved by tumor and, and not to include those downstream processes like pneumonia or downstream obstructive changes or other non-specific, non-neoplastic uh, recommended processes. Scoring of the lymph nodes is also similar where you have a quantitative scoring of lymph nodes using the same approach as the primary tumor. Where they differ is in verbiage of stroma. Um, in the ISLAC criteria, stroma is any inflammation or fibrosis that's around, and that includes the intratumoral stroma, whereas the tumor is the area of tumor epithelium only. Using the immune-related pathologic response criteria, the term uh, stroma isn't really used. So intratumoral epithelium as well as intratumoral stroma, like fibrosis, if you think about a desmoplastic response to, to that tumor epithelium, as long as it doesn't show the constellation of the features of regression that we just talked about, that's considered surface area of the tumor. And that, therefore, um, you know, has a, a different implication um, as you're calculating that residual viable tumor versus the uh, original tumor bed component. Um, ISLAC doesn't uh, truly use the terminology of regression bed um, and necessarily um, recognizing that wound healing response or that, that proliferative fibrosis. Um, in terms of development and validation of these, as I've mentioned um, before, um, IRPRC was developed using neoadjuvant uh, anti-PD-1 monotherapy, but has since been validated with chemo alone and chemo IO. Um, the ISLAC criteria were largely developed in the context of chemotherapy, and validation in this new immunotherapy setting is, is ongoing. So in summary, I would say that the pan-tumor IRPRC really leverages the pathologist's ability to distinguish between intratumoral stroma that hasn't been touched by therapy and true tumor regression. So I'll show you some examples here. Um, on the left is, is an example of a viable tumor as shown by the arrows that has this marked um, immune-mediated response. Um, it has all the attendant criteria that we talked about before, that dense lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate, proliferative fibrosis, neovascularization. Um, this would be scored as, as a major pathologic response or 10% residual viable tumor, both by the pan-tumor criteria and by the ISLAC criteria. A difference would be seen over here on the right, where there's lots of glands set in this fibrotic stroma, but really not a, a evidence of regression or true tumor clearance by the immune system. That would be 
um, 100% residual viable tumor using the PAN tumor system. Because the ISLAC system is really looking at true epithelial tumor cellularity and calls any stroma um, that, that part of the, the tumor bed, if you will, this would actually be a major pathologic response by ISLAC criteria. So a big, a big distinction um, in that case. Uh, a second example of that is, is shown here. This is taking place in, in a lymph node. You can see the, the background cuff off to the right past the pathologist's markings. And what we see here is um, clearly an adenocarcinoma that's inciting quite a uh, desmoplastic response, but again, no evidence of immune-mediated tumor clearance, and this would be one that we would expect for there to be a discrepancy between the PAN tumor scoring system and through the ISLAC criteria. Um, more specifically, this would be uh, an MPR by ISLAC and again, 100% residual viable tumor by the other. Really, um, we estimate that cases such as this with really this strong uh, desmoplastic response to the tumor itself um, only account for a minority of cases. And we think that in non-small cell lung carcinoma, it's somewhere on the order of 5%. But this is one uh, point worth making as, as those comparisons between the scoring systems are, are further studied. I will say that if I showed you this plot before, looking at residual viable tumor and how that continuous um, metric correlates with event-free survival. If you actually instead use percent regression rather than looking at percent residual viable tumor, um, you get a similar area under the curve. And so I think this underscores the pathologist's ability to distinguish treatment effect. Like we can see what immune-mediated regression is and we can distinguish it from intertumoral stroma. And in fact, there is a predictive ability in us being able to achieve that. So there is proven value. So in conclusion, uh, neoadjuvant immunotherapy uh, will drive a dramatic increase in clinical demand for us as pathologists to perform these response assessments. Um, I am a strong advocate for a pan tumor scoring system. I think it benefits pathologists. Um, it's very hard to be swapping back and forth between scoring systems and um, having a standardized one allows us to deliver, I think, more consistent and, and robust high quality patient care. And I think that it is possible for us to identify features of tumor regression on H&E stain slide and um, doing that uh, supports a strong calculation of percent residual viable tumor. Thanks a lot, Dr. Tab. I have I have one question. I love the contrast between the your PD one <clears throat> assessment slide with the the chaos and the complexities of all the different assays, and then this nice presentation of this simple pan tumor uh, response assessment. Can you speak to how and why you were this was able to kind of be adopted? It looks like adopted fairly broadly, kind of early on, um, in contrast to maybe some of the diagnostic assays that that I discussed. Yeah, so I think it's it's still early days yet, and as as I showed. Um, 
uh, some of those studies that I was showing were not done in the context of phase three clinical trials, and that that will be key and in terms of a longer term adoption. But I think what's most important is that this agent scoring by pathologists, which is um, often a co-primary or even a secondary endpoint in these studies, um, they're not regulated like a true diagnostic test. So um, pathologists can potentially implement this differently, including the potential for post hoc comparisons between scoring systems um, and adjustments on our end. It, it, it can be done and there's some flexibility there because it's not regulated right now in the way that a true diagnostic is. Right, thank you. Well, with that, I would like to thank the organizers as well as Dr. Ritterhouse for a great presentation and, and discussion today. Um, thanks for attending and I hope you find this helpful to you in your practice. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash FTC 860. This activity is supported through independent educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb and Merck Company Incorporated.